for the New York Mets, but still, he was one of the best and great players on the Mets during a, a very dark period. And without further ado, we're going to bring on some of the folks who were part of that dark period. But they were going through baseball for the first time, and this was their introduction uh, to baseball. And, and without further ado, uh, Skip will be joining us uh, later on. But first, Mike LaColance from Bensonhurst. What's going on, Mike? Good evening, boys. How you doing? I'm all, I'm all, I'm okay. A little tired, a little groggy. Just woke up, but I should be okay. Well, there, well, there you go. I, I hope you're going to be fantastic, man. Uh, you know, when you're talking to one of your childhood heroes. Uh, yeah. You know, Mike, and uh, before you know, before we introduce the the other fellow of, of our uh, our uh, trifecta of a Metzian podcast, uh, Mike, I, I found a tweet of yours from 2011 recently where you mentioned that Skip Lockwood is your top five all time favorite relievers in Mets history. Uh, he is, you know, uh, 75. He was acquired by the Mets, and I was still in a rage because they had traded Tug McGraw. But uh, my feelings for Skip Lockwood were independent of that, and he grew to become one of my favorite Mets at that time, uh, and all time for that matter. Uh, he's always st- stuck out in my memory. 1976 uh, was a special year for me. I was nine years old, uh, and it was their last, let's just say, good year, very good year, actually, before things uh, soured in Flushing uh, with the trade of Tom Seaver in 77. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we're, we'll certainly, I, I think, bring up that. Uh, uh, Skip obviously played with Tom for uh, two and a half years, two and a half seasons. Uh, but um, Rich, you know, Rich Sparago, Connecticut, uh, who is is one of the the, uh, the members who have been around since 2013 of this uh, trifecta. Rich, that, that, was, that was your, your era. Uh, comment, you know, would, would, would you say that still to this day that may be that first incarnation for you of the Mets in the 70s was your favorite era of the Mets? Well, yeah, I, you know, Tug was great. And when I first started watching baseball, Tug was the closer. And we know what a closer was because there wasn't really a term for it. He was just a guy who would be out at the end of the game. And like Mike, I was very disappointed when Tug was traded. He he was inspirational. He was funny. Uh, we all know that you got to believe 73 rallying cry and all of that. And so Tug's gone, and who steps in but Skip Lockwood? And um, and it was a warm-up period. You know, he had to uh, ingratiate himself to the fan base, which when you're replacing Tug McGraw, that takes some time. But he did it through – he's exactly the opposite guy. You know, he's not, he's not flamboyant. He's not funny necessarily. He's not um, a big personality. He's just a very effective, solid, working man's kind of closer, and he was very effective. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I really took the skip Lockwood in the same way Mike did. 
Well, we look forward to talking about uh, of talking with Skip Lockwood and, and talking about that era. Uh, but first, we're going to talk a little 2019. That's this is the year we're talking about, guys. It's weird to say, actually in a Mets perspective, uh, but we only got here. Uh, for a New Year's podcast, a, a post-New Year's podcast. So we have a lot to talk about. And, and Rich, you know, you kind of had to remind me of, of certain things. So I'm going to go to you uh, first about uh, Jed Lowry. You know, um, it, it, it's it's just a lot of infielders out there, huh? Yeah, you know, they had to do something. They had to get a um... – someone who could back up shortstop. You know, Reyes is gone. Flores is gone. So they had to get someone who, to be a utility middle infielder. And they went out and they got a good one. You know, Lowry, my concern with him is the obvious one. He'll be 35 years old this year, so I'm a little concerned about that. And Cano being 35 as well, 36 during the season for Cano. But if you look at production, Lowry's coming off his best statistical season. 23 home runs, 99 RBIs with a 267 batting average. So, um, you know, he's a he's a switch hitter which I love having on the bench. It basically gives you two pinch hitters. He could play all over the infield. He could play a touch of outfield in a pinch as much as I hate playing guys out of position. But when you think about it, you know, you have a veteran bat on the bench. Um, he could play all over the place. He's a switch hitter. He certainly doesn't seem to be slowing down professional type hitter. So I, I, I think the Mets kicked ass with this one. I really do. I've never been a Wilmer Flores fan, and I think Lowry could do a lot more for the team than Flores can. Um, I think he could do a lot more for the team than a than a much past his prime Reyes can. So I look at it, and, and I know we've talked about this, but I looked at it as yet another one of Brody's incremental upgrades. Um, you know, he's, he's constantly adding value. It hasn't been Harper. It hasn't been Machado. But he's constantly upgrading. There are those at names. Moving that way. Well, uh, you know, we, I don't think we could get through the entire episode without saying those two names, correct? Um, but at the same time, you bring up many, many good points. It, it, it's just uh, that it, it's always going to be not enough. And, and, Mike, you always talk about the fact that in two years – there's going to be some debt paid off uh, and this and that and the other. Um, but, you know, when looking at the Lowry deal, I think Met fans have been talking about Jed Lowry for a long time. His attitude had something uh, that people uh, talked about for a long time, if I, if I remember correctly. The reason why, uh, one of the reasons why they wouldn't want him to come aboard because he, he, he might have been toxic, if you will. But, I think, you know, when when Rich is talking about the way it's all shaping together, and I was listening to another uh, podcast, which is the S&Y podcast, Shay Anything, um, about who Brody has brought uh, into his inner circle. And they, they've been very analytical based, uh, analytically based and, and talk, talking about projections. Uh, I don't, I can't uh, off the top of my head uh, remember exactly what the names are of those folks, but but Brody does seem to be analyzing and he seems to be having a good time with the GM job in general. And we, you know, we saw the, the uh, bat, uh, you know, where he, he took some, uh, some, some swings in the batting cages, uh, you know, obviously plenty of people are going to go, 
when you're you're saying, hey, you want to have some fun? Uh, well, let's get Bryce Harper. That'll be fun. Uh, but anyway, you know, Mike, what do you think of Jed Lowry and also what Brody has been doing with the entire roster? Well, I really can't add much to what Rich said about Jed Lowry. It's a good acquisition. I understand what Brody is doing. He's reinforcing the entire 40-man roster. We've said numerous times on this podcast that it takes a 40-man roster to win a championship, not a 25-man roster. So I understand what he's doing. Uh, You know I have mixed emotions about the hire itself because he was originally friends with Jeff, and that sticks out. But independent of that, I I understand the plan. I understand the plan short-term. I understand the plan long-term. And quite frankly, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, Again, I think he's trying to build some redundancy on the 40-man roster, uh, protect ourselves from injury. I say ourselves, uh, but protect the Mets from injury. Uh, You know, things have fallen apart lately uh, when just one one player going down. So in that respect, uh, I understand I'm in agreement with his maneuverings so far. I would just ask that, uh, excuse me, I would just add that they hired or he hired Russell Carlton from Baseball Perspectives to be a part of the analytical uh, division of the front office. So that's another good move. He's done. I'm most impressed with his front office moves and the people he brought in, AAA manager from the Red Sox, uh, some of their front office people as well. So I'm very happy with what he's done internally. Again, to the front office, uh, I would put what he's done to the 40-man rosters behind that. Yeah, I have to agree with uh, with both of you. And, and speaking of another 40-man roster move, which I believe was the Gavin Cicchini, uh designated for assignments because of this particular move that we're about to talk about, um, Justin Wilson. Uh, Rich, did I? I'm, I'm sorry to to not go to the uh, the internet tape, but Justin Wilson, did I get the name right of this guy? You did. Great. So, first of all, uh, one of the things Rich, Rich and I talked about off air was that you're probably going to see a lot of uh, Wilson jokes, whether they be Dennis the Menace or uh, Castaway with the ball, with the volleyball. But, Rich, I asked a Cubs fan friend of mine what he thought of it. You know, the, the numbers seem, you know, adequate, you know, if you will. Uh, but now – I only got one answer from it, so I haven't analyzed it. I haven't, I haven't asked him further to tell me why he said this. But, Rich, his response was, eh. Well, okay. I mean, but, but Wilson, he's a crossover lefty. He's traditionally had very good splits against righties and lefties, and, in fact, in some cases, better splits against righties. Uh, last year he was better against lefties. So, but when you look at it, they had to put a lefty in the bullpen. You've got some more out there, and he certainly looks good. You know, he's that drop-down lefty who, who probably is devastating on a left-handed hitter. But he has very limited major league experience. And you know, maybe Vargas ends up in the bullpen, maybe not. But you need another left-handed arm out there. And so we're going to get this arm. Do, do you want to keep trading? Your minor league pieces, I don't think anybody wants, the Mets see, anybody wants to see the Mets do more of that. So you had to go to the free agent market. And when you look at what's out there, 
Yeah, Andrew Miller was out there, but but he's had an injury history, and he's also getting up there. I think he's 34 years old. Wilson, on the other hand, is you know much younger than that, and and he's any he, he's a crossover guy can get both out. He was available. He didn't cost the Mets any talent; just cost the Mets a two-year contract. So I, I don't see the problem with with picking up this guy. You know, when you think about who the Mets had last year, and Sam, you and I talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, they were relying on Jerry Blevins. We all love Jerry Blevins. He's funny. He's gregarious. He does the Hello Jerry show and all of that. But but the guy couldn't get anybody out last year, and he's 35 years old. So let, it was time to move on from him. You had to get that lefty arm, and I would argue that <sighs> Wilson was one of the best ones out there, um, and the Mets got him. So, again, I, I think it's another incremental upgrade. It's not the sexiest of moves, but it's another solid pickup. You know, you make a, a lot of points, and yeah, he he is rather young, and and Blevins, of course, yeah, we we love him, but he's he's going to be. It's so funny his role of 2015, which was getting injured very early after uh, success, and then that carried over into 2016, uh, 2017. He also wasn't even though this season was terrible, wasn't bad. This was just, I was shell-shocked, Mike, when watching that. And uh, I think Rich brings up a lot of good points that, you know, I'm just basing it off of one Cubs fan's eh, opinion when that was a, that was a good dig by, by Rich. Yeah, without a doubt. And I, I really can't add much more to it. Uh, he, he, he's building a team that's solid throughout. We're not going to say stellar, but solid throughout. Uh, I think that's his aim short term, and I'm okay with that. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Sorry, I, uh, I thought it was muted, but we are actually going to segue because we have the man and the legend himself with us right now, and that's a former Mets right-handed pitcher, Skip Lockwood. And uh, Skip... I'm I'm so happy to uh, to welcome you uh, to the the podcast, and um, I, I I just want to say uh, first of first of all, we we love going right into shameless plugs here. So you wrote such a fantastic <laughs> book that dives so deep into what it's like to to not only be a major leaguer but be a a human being uh, being in love with the game of baseball. So, uh, Skip, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, tell us about your book. Well, I see him. Uh, can you hear me okay? We can hear yeah. you perfectly. Okay, great. I have a, uh, a new phone. Um, I have a long history of, of dropping uh, cell phones. And uh, so I, I got a new phone. Uh, two days ago, and dropped it on the way out of the phone store, and um, had to bring it back in. It and the warranty wasn't on the books yet, so I actually had to buy another one. Um, so I'm on my second phone of the week, and I'm not quite sure how to use it. So I hope you can hear me okay. Um, I can hear you. Uh, oh, the, it's, um, it's crystal clear, sir. Good. Good. Um, Insight uh, pitch was um, was a labor of love. It, it was enjoyable for me to to write. It took a few years 
um, to remember the stories. It, it took another while to organize it in, in a way that had some appeal um, to the readers. I didn't want it to just to read like a chronology, um, you know, starting with the beginning and, and ending with the end of my career. I wanted, I wanted it to follow um, some of the highlights and, and lowlights of, of how I remembered it. And as I said to you when, when I accepted your invitation, um, the, the book had a peculiar way of having a life of its own. Um, when remembering a story about a guy like Jerry Grody, um, I would remember one, um, another one about Tom Seaver or, or um, John Matlack. And it was just, it was amazing to me that the, the stories seemed to, to come alive when, when I was writing. And I never expected that these stories would, would weave their way into the book until all of a sudden they were there and I was telling a story uh, that I never intended to, to, to tell. And it was amazing for me and uh, quite satisfying to, to be able to remember you know, the Mets in such a way that New York fans and New York uh, media certainly have embraced it and loved it. Uh, but even more than that, um, I was invited to the Hall of Fame this year in Cooperstown to speak uh, about the book and, and got great reviews there, not only about the book, but about the talk. And so it, it's been um, a bit of a journey here, and, and I've enjoyed it. Um, to answer your question directly, and not to be too esoteric, um, when, when people describe me, in my career, um, they always use the past tense. You know, he pitched for the Mets. He was major leaguer. Um, past tense has, has been something which describes most athletes, I, I think. And I wanted a present tense. I wanted something that would give me um, something to, to say now. I wanted to write my story in, in the present tense, in the first person, so... I could bring the reader with me now out on the field as if they had the uniform on. And it gives me great joy to be, to have a career where I have a present tense. And I don't mean to, to be too lofty about that, but that was one of the, the driving um, underlying motivations for me to, to complete, um, to write. And by the way, I wrote all the words myself. Um, to, to write this book and, and to complete it um, uh, certainly was satisfying. Yeah, I really like the way you just framed that because, you know, I'm, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a, I'm a screenwriter, and those are all about the present tense. And when you're reading it, you, you know, whenever anybody is really reliving anything, they're reliving it in the present tense. They are... Uh, uh, sculpting it for their current being, and I really like the way the way that you just presented that. Um, so let's get right into that. So I I think the best place to start is probably the injury um, when you were very young, and uh, and and kind of just you know 
without giving too much away, because obviously we, we want people to read this uh, more because I, I think it's one of the best descriptive books about baseball ever. Um, talk about your, your uh, injury with the glass. Yeah, I was, um, almost cut my right arm off. Um, it was a hot summer day and I was at an, uh, 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 in, um, uh, my wife's, my mother's sister's house and, and I tripped, uh, while I was, uh, jumping on the couch out on the back porch that I was not supposed to be jumping on at all. I hit a seam in the cushion and, and went through the the bedroom window that was on the porch uh, that separated the, the porch from the, the, the bedroom inside, and a glass came down and cut me. Um, I didn't really know how bad, but it was, it hurt, and we got to the hospital, and um, the thing that scared me the most about it was certainly the look on my father's face uh, when when he saw it, and uh, the, the recovery uh, from the injury was... Um, baseball was pitching. Um, he decided that, that this this was not going to hold either one of us back, and that uh, I would be able to use the arm. And he, he bought a couple of baseball gloves, and we started to play catch. Um, it was more therapy um, or than anything else. And I think I was probably age seven, late seven, eight, um, in that time frame and so we he'd come home from work and would play catch and I got fascinated by it. I got better at it. My arms seemed to get stronger and so I would play in the basement against the cinder block basement and I would throw socks at at the wall and tennis balls, the ping pong balls, anything I could lay my hands on. I'd throw rocks in the out in outside at the squirrels and the trees and just a little boy, you know, doing something that felt good to do. Um, as it turns out, the arm got stronger. And um, I didn't have any way to measure how, how good it was or strong it was in, until we, we went out for the Little League team. And at that point in time, I was really too young. I think I was 10, on the young side of 10, um, to really make the major leagues. They had um, minor leagues and, and major leagues and little league at the time, and um, driving out, not not knowing or not thinking that I was going to make the team. As it turns out, I I did. I made the team and became an all star, and and the team went to the state finals a couple of times. Yet, um, you know, the injuries injuries should never define you, and disabilities. Um, should never define you. And uh, my father was determined, and I inherited that determination um, that this injury to my arm was not going to be a defining characteristic or moment in my life, and then I would overcome it. And um, then I did. And, and it is certainly part of the story, not the only part of the story, but it's certainly the part of the story that, that starts me on the journey uh, through Major League Baseball. So you grew up in Norwood, Massachusetts. So obviously uh, the Red Sox are, are huge all over Massachusetts. So um, before the injury, where was the role in your 
in your family and yourself uh, for for baseball? Well, I, I will remind you, I'm in my 70s, so um, we didn't have a lot of television coverage, and if there, it was, I'm not sure I could adjust the rabbit ears on the TV to, to get the games. Uh, if you remember, you we used to put aluminum foil on top of the of the rabbit ears on the TV and point them in different directions trying to get it to work. Um, I did catch a, a lot of games on radio, um, and I, I love the Red Sox uh, growing up, but I was I was a player, and I really didn't have the patience for, for sitting in front of uh, the radio TV. I would much rather be down in the basement um, throwing tennis balls against the, the wall. Um, I love playing. I love being part of a team, having a uniform. Um, I used to wear the uniform under my clothes when I go to school, and um, I don't do that anymore. Um, <laughs> but it was, for me, baseball um, became a language. It be- became something that I spoke and something I was very proud that I was able to do. I was better than the other boys in Little League and high school and in the pros, I was better. And getting to be, do something um, at that level with intensity and, and having some success at it was, was was very gratifying for me. It Where to go from there? I mean, there's so many different places, but I think the only place that we can go first is the Mets. Um, I, I don't know exactly where to start, but I, I think that basically the place that I can start is uh, that the jersey you're wearing on the cover, and I'm definitively saying this now that I'm, I'm talking to you, uh, is my favorite Mets jersey of all time. And I, I have desperately wanted the Mets and whoever you know fits retro uh, jerseys to realize that us Mets fans will buy anything as it relates to the team. And you know, for, come on, help! Some people find the mid uh, '90s underlying logo appealing enough to buy, and they those teams were terrible. Um, I've I've desperately wanted to get a 1978 John Stearns number 12 snow white pinstripe polo. Other than uh, that, I guess, being a request, uh, but let's use that as a segue to talk about your battery mate, the dude, and with all uh, due respect to the Big Lebowski, the original dude at that. Yeah, the, um, there, there's been, I've worn some interesting jerseys. Um, I didn't ask for 38 when I got to the, to the Mets, it was given to me, Um Herbie Norman, who, who plays a role in the book, if, if you remember, uh, was the uh, clubhouse guy. And uh, he, he gave me the jersey um, the day I arrived. Uh, when I went to the Red Sox, they asked me if I wanted 38. And um, it, they gave that to me when I came to the Red Sox. I was the first free agent that the Red Sox ever signed and, and got the, the number 38 as well. Um, and, and that was special to, to wear 38. Um, when I was with the uh, Milwaukee Brewers, I, I wore the number 42. And as you know, it's, it's Jackie Robinson's birthday today. And, and that was very special. 
to to wear that uniform as well. Um, so the the uniforms are are, are, are very individual, and, and I actually donated uh, the Mets jersey to a museum in uh, California. Um, Tom Seaver, as you know, got traded to Cincinnati, and a big loss for me personally for the for the team and for the city. Um, and when he came back to play his first game, he took a picture with me um, in a, a Cincinnati Reds jersey, and, and I had it um, put on the front of my game uniform that I wore when I was with the Mets and sent it to Tom, and he signed it. Um, Hall of Fame. Uh, I don't know what year it was. It was in the Hall of Fame, but whatever year he got taken, he should have came in unanimously. By the way, in my opinion, um, uh, here, here. should have been the first player to come in unanimously. Um, but it was, it was. In, uh, by the way, um, before I go into Tom Seaver stories, I'm going to see. Uh, I think I'm going to see John Stearns this weekend. Um, and if you want me to ask him if he's got an extra shirt um, laying around, <laughs> I will uh, uh, see if I can see if I can get one for you. If if there's a small out there, that's fine. But obviously, I will accept any size. <laughs> but I'm ready to wear it. <laughs> you know, when when uh, when I was uh, I went to spring training as a as a Seattle pilot one year in 1969 I was with Seattle one year wonder one year team great Seattle pilots and um, we went to spring training as the pilots we went all the way through the spring training and then at the end of spring training I think it was 10 days or, or less before the beginning of the season the whole team got sold to Bud Selig and the Milwaukee Brewers became the Milwaukee Brewers if you, you, I'm sure you remember that. Um, oh, one thing that happened between the time that <clears throat> we heard about the the, the sales of the from the pilots to the Brewers is that the team had sent the luggage ahead to uh, Seattle, so all the players' luggage was on a truck. The bats and the balls were to the bases, uniforms. Everything that had to do with baseball and the team was on a truck and heading towards Seattle where we were going to open up the season. The team, however, went to Milwaukee. Um, and when we got to Milwaukee to open up the season, we didn't have any uniforms. We had a spring training leftover pilot's uniform. And we had um, – well, obviously, the, the sports stores weren't carrying uniforms, baseball uniforms that time of year. They were carrying – you know, ice fishing gear and bowling gear in Milwaukee. They didn't care about baseball. It was April. And um, so what the clubhouse guy did is he um, took off pilots off the back, the front of the uniform, kept the number, the numbering on the back, so the same numbers, and replaced uh, pilots with brewers on it. And... Um, that's not that easy to do. So it, it was glued on to begin with. And when you try to take a hot iron or something like that and take it off or, or, or tear it off, 
it melts the glue and makes a mess out of the uniforms. So, and we had we had no time to do this, and the clubhouse guy wasn't very skilled at at re-gluing, you know, names, <laughs> uh, the words, the letters onto the the uniform. So, and it was laborious. I mean, we had 25 guys and coaches and everybody that had to have uniforms that 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 fit them. <laughs> so, it was it was quite a chore. Uh, I actually had an original pilot shirt. It was a, a wool shirt that somebody had found in uh, in auctions. It was my shirt because on the inside, the Wilson stamp, a Rawlings stamp, I think it was inside, and underneath it, it was assigned to me and had the date and all that stuff. So it actually worked quite a bit of money uh, to have a game-worn shirt that was my shirt, and I had it hanging on my wall for an awful long time. Uh, and that that was a, a great joy to be involved in, in those two teams. Um, wearing the Mets uniform was was very different for me. Um, coming to, to a big city, um, it was very interesting for um, for me to be given the opportunity. Uh, Tug McCraw had been um, traded to Philadelphia. Uh, Kenny Sanders and Bob Apodaca were sharing their relief pitcher role. Um, they were doing okay. Um, they weren't doing great, but they were doing okay. And I got a chance to come to the Mets, and I had a, a fastball that was very lively. They had a little bit of a curveball, but, but not too much. But I did have a, a live arm, as they say in baseball. And I had a lot of a lot of life to my fastball, and um, I could I could throw strikes. I loved the competition. So, and I don't really know that you do until you come to a place that that values your 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 input. In other words, if you come someplace and um, you start to play and you know, ten or twelve thousand people in the stands appreciate you. That's one thing. But if you come to New York and it's fifty thousand people um, standing and, and clapping for you, it's a big deal. It makes a big difference to me. And it just it wasn't an adrenaline rush for me. It was, I got I got um, very interested in the the science of pitching and in using visualization as a tool. To, to make myself better and more consistent. Um, Tom Seaver, of course, was uh, uh, has written a bunch of books on, on um, how to pitch, the science of pitching, and he was a, a great leader, uh, inspirational leader. He, he would ask you questions about about things. You'd be riding the bus after the game back to the hotel, and you'd be sitting next to him and. And he'd ask you why? Why did you pitch tonight? Uh, what were you thinking about? You know, you you pitched great. What, what was going through your head um, when those things were happening? And he kept a a book on hitters. I never used to keep a book on hitters until I met Tom. He was a guy that tried to remember the things that he did well, and not that he would try to block out 
the bad things, but he would try to remember as best he could why why he was successful. And he used to practice um, all of those things before they came. You know, before anybody would get to the ballpark, Tom, Tom would be out there running, um, doing his calisthenics. Um, we didn't really have uh, videotapes at the time, but he'd be going through his book. He'd be remembering the hitters, and he challenged me to to be a better pitcher, to, to be more thoughtful, um, more visual with my approach to how I pitched. And as you know from reading the book, I do a lot with trying to be able to create the game before it ever happens and, and create the images of what it was going to be like to pitch and to be successful and to picture the ball going in, <clears throat> the batter missing it, and Jerry Grody having to pop on his catcher's mitt. And, you know, all of that stuff would took, took on a life of its own. And a great, a great many, a great much of a great deal of that is, is due to my being introduced to, to Tom Seaver. That's uh, that's fascinating, uh, of course. I mean, you know, Tom loved talking about pitching. Uh, I remember when Johan Santana got traded to the the Mets. S and Y did this sit down with Tom Seaver and Johan Santana, just talking about pitching together which I'd love to find as an archive. I'm not sure if SNY has it uh, archived anywhere, but uh, it, it is fascinating uh, to, to just always think about that. And uh, there's some, sometimes you watch pitchers, uh, Skip, that clearly don't have, aren't thinking from an artistic standpoint, but forget about an artistic standpoint, aren't thinking strategy, aren't thinking – and, 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 and maybe that has something to do with the battery made sometimes too. But like, I do remember sometimes when Oliver Perez was pitching, starting pitching for the, the New York Mets, uh, because he's become quite the lefty specialist lately. But, uh, I, I just remember looking in and just saying to myself, is this guy thinking about pitching at all? Yeah. Well, I, Sometimes you don't have to think too much. Um, <clears throat> it, it, mental toughness is not uh, being rigid in your thinking. It's it's remembering a series of motions and and being able to duplicate those series of motions um, in in to set in place uh, a dynamic for yourself so that. You can you can roll that script. Um, baseball, if you think of it as a motion picture, in which you play a leading role, you have to put yourself in the picture and visualize yourself, uh, and, and you have to be comfortable. It, it has to be real. It has to be, um, I would say, urgent. And, and if I asked you. Uh, you know, what do you think it would be like to pitch the ninth inning of, of a 3-2 baseball game at Shea Stadium uh, in, in August? I don't know how you would answer that question, except that it's, it's, you would be, first of all, trying to think about that and picture that for yourself. 
it would be very difficult because it's not real. It, it wouldn't it wouldn't really register. You might even chuckle or laugh to yourself, saying, "Well, this is this is stupid." Even start to think about, unless of course, that's what you have to do. Um, it, it was my job as the closer for the Mets to stand out there when the game was on the line and come away with a win. Um, and I wasn't any more ready for that than, than any other pitcher in, in the major leagues was. It was a role that, that landed in my lap. Um, I had to, I, I was afraid of being, uh, unsuccessful. I was afraid of being successful. I, 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 I wasn't quite sure what to do. Uh, I had a role with it with a with a mess that was very important. Um, I knew it was very important, and I had to, to give myself permission to to accept that. And the way that I chose to do it, and and Tom Seaver chose to do it as well, is to prepare the game with with meditation beforehand and to sit down in uniform, full uniform, and and close your eyes and, and picture yourself in that situation being successful. And and if if you can't do that, if you got distracted and it wasn't clear to you or or you, or, or something happened and you, you were distracted um, then you, you you needed to do it again, because when you when you go out to to, to play, even though your mind may not you, you, your mind may be a little foggy, your your body your body chemistry will remember the the things that that you have created for it. And as Tom knew and he taught me that if you can create a series of movements that's repetitious and something that you really believe in and, and you know what that what that series of movements is going to result in and it, it makes it a lot easier when you go out to do it not that it's going to be successful every single time it's it's not but but it's going to happen the way you plan it to happen more often than than if you don't plan it or if you just let it happen to you you know, somebody's got to be in charge of that motion picture. And if you're not in charge of it, who's in charge of it? So it was my, 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 my purpose in, in, in preparing the, the games beforehand is to put myself in stress situations with a game on the line, Jerry Grody giving me the sign, and me throwing a fastball by somebody at the end of the game. I, that's what I was visualizing, and you know that from from reading the book. That's what I I told the stories about were, that were in there. Yeah, and it, it, it's fantastic. Uh, I, I I can't uh, stop complimenting it enough. Um, I I want to discuss uh, before I I bring the the other guys on. I I just want to discuss the, the you, you know, you mentioned Jerry Grody, and it just reminded me, you know, uh, John Stern's Jerry Grody, the battery mate situation. Um, if you could delve into that a little bit, what's going on between you and the catcher? Well, um, 
in some cases it's it's more than you think, and in, in, in others it's not. Um, I think there's a communication uh, between a catcher and a pitcher that is um, symbiotic. Uh, you get on the same page. Um, makes it easier if you don't have to think about pitch selection or if you, you don't have to think about where to throw the pitch. If you have confidence that the catcher knows the batter and, and knows, um, you know, what's what's going to work in this situation. And I was I was a pretty much one pitch pitcher, so I didn't have a lot a lot of variation, you know, coming. Uh, you know, I could I could I could spin a little curveball every now and then, but I was always afraid it was going to get hit, and I was too proud of my fastball to let somebody beat me with a with a breaking ball. So I would more more than likely throw the fastball if I had a choice. Um, and Jerry Grody. And John, I, I threw a lot to Jerry Grody, especially in the early couple of years. John Stearns came along, of course, was an all-star, and I know John very well. Uh, but I have a, a sweet spot in my memory for, for Jerry Grody. And, you know, Jerry Grody was tough as nails. He was was what he looks like he is. He was a gamer. He was dirty. He was into the game. He was aggravating to the to the other hitters. He was always trying to get an edge on every situation that he possibly could. Very tough, hard scrabble kind of guy. And I'll tell you a story quickly if we have time. Um, when I was, was first with the Mets, um, as you know, I wore, wore very thick glasses. I, I got some contact lenses towards the end of my career in New York. But never really could wear them all that well. They were they were the old plastic hard ones and the new the new contact lenses are coming out and they were wobbly and I, I couldn't see that well with them. So I'm not, a lot of times I'd put my glasses on. They were John Lennon looking glasses with the ear straps that used to wrap around the elastic ear straps. Um it didn't look very attractive to anybody. Um and but Jerry Grody decided that that they certainly were an advantage, especially if you if you threw hard and, and you could be a little wild at times, um, like Ryan Duran and some other pitchers um, have used, you know, wearing glasses to their advantage. Uh, so we were we were going into uh, Pittsburgh, and Jerry was Jerry. I was I tried to do the crossword puzzles. As best I could, Seaver and Grody were much better than I was, and I was in the the lounge before we got on the plane. And Jerry had already finished the crossword puzzle on our way to Pittsburgh. And he came over and he sat down with me, and I'm struggling with one across, and he couldn't get the words. And and uh, he sat down. And he says, "You know," he says, "Have you ever been to Pittsburgh?" And I said, "No." I, you know, I heard it's a nice city. <laughs> He said, yeah, he said, you're not going to see too much of it, but he said, uh, the part of the city that you're, you're probably going to see tomorrow is, is a guy named Stargell. Um, have you ever met him? Do you know him? And I said, no, of course not. I haven't ever pitched in this league before. Uh, he said, okay. He said, well, he said, I want you to to, uh, to brush him back if you see him and he comes up, and especially in a crucial situation, he said, I want you to not knock him down, but I want you to 
you know, brush them back, especially um, if it's a close game. And I want you to throw it hard. I want you to come inside and throw it hard. <clears throat> so I'm looking at him, you know, trying to understand whether he's being serious or not. And then he, he gives me two words for my crossword puzzle and, and walks away. Following day, um, I got the game in the eighth inning. I think it was 5-2 or 5-3, and we were up, and here comes Willie Stargell um, to, to the plate. And I'd never faced Stargell before. And I knew his routine, you know, the shaking the bat back and forth. And, and I get the sign from Grody um, to throw inside. And it's a universal sign that catchers give to pitchers. And so I, I don't want to hit him because I didn't have a big enough lead to put him on base. So I threw it behind him, um, about a foot behind him, and I threw it hard. It, it, uh, I think it came closer to the, uh, the bat boy with had the bats behind Stargell than it actually came to him. And, and Grody was just delighted that, that I threw that pitch. He never moved from his squat position when the ball was released and, until it hit the backstop. He just stayed right there, didn't move. And um, Sarger looks out at me because I'm wiping these very thick glasses off now and you know playing it up as best I can. And I, I know what we're I know what we're supposed to be doing here. And uh, so Grody comes out and he and he and Sarger have been talking. You know, what the hell was that? What's going on? Oh, man, this kid's new to to the big leagues and um, throws real hard. He hurt somebody last week, and, you know, you ought to be on your toes. He doesn't know anybody in the league. And <laughs> it's quite hilarious. He was telling me after the game. So when he says to me, comes out and takes his mask off, and he said, okay, okay, listen, this guy's left-handed. <laughs> and then he... <laughs> He puts his mask back on it, goes back behind home plate. <laughs> and Stargell looks down at him and he says, the hell? And he doesn't. He said, well, he said, I'm not sure he can see you that well. In the, he said, the way you threw that pitch, I think he thinks you're a right-handed batter. So he said, I just wanted to give him some more information so he could make a decision about what he was doing. <laughs> No, anyway, uh, every time I faced uh, Pittsburgh, um, Stargell would always come over. We became friends, and he'd look at my glasses, and he'd look at me, and he'd go, whoa. Man, that's, that's, that's some serious lenses, man. Um, very interesting man. I loved him. Well, that's great. And uh, before I bring the guys on, it just has to it, – it, it only reminds me – of the incident with the kid at the ball field, and and uh, you know just go from there. All right, well, actually, actually, before you before you answer, I, I, what I am wondering is, in that moment when you were throwing to Willie Stargell, are you thinking about the incident of hitting the kid on the ball field? No, no, it's I try to stay in the moment. Um, I th- I thought it was unique. 
to be in a situation where you can face somebody for the very first time. And I wanted to to gain as much advantage as I could. <clears throat> Grody obviously um, was playing playing it up as well. Um, no, that didn't that didn't enter my mind. I was I was in the moment. I was trying to do as much as I could to get the get the pirates out. That does make sense. Um, and and we'll bring on uh, the gentleman. We have Rich Sparago, who uh, grew up. Uh, Rich, you're in Connecticut now, but where did you grow up? Uh, going, you know, from you know, going to and fro Shea. Basically, the same area. I've always lived within about an hour of Shea, and um, you know, went to many many games over the years, including many that Skip pitched in. Well, exactly. So, I, so I have, go ahead, Skip. Sorry, I, I said uh, my con, my condolences. <laughs> I, I used to, I used they're still up there. It's it's pretty cold these days up in uh, in Connecticut. I think it's uh, it's biting today, and it's not quite as bad as Wisconsin, you know, Illinois, and uh, Indiana. But uh, but we we were about minus fifteen wind chill this morning. Yeah! Wow! Unbelievable. You know, I miss Shea Stadium. That's a that's a grand old ballpark. Um, and, you know, it was an interesting place to pitch in. Um, it was a big ballpark, and the wind used to howl off, off the, the – from like from the direction of the airport because uh, LaGuardia is right there. And the planes used to be landing – used to be so close to the scoreboard coming in for landing and everything. Um <laughs> It's an interesting place to pitch because, as you know, Mitch, um, outfielders, part of being an outfielder is, is learning the sound that the bat makes when the ball's hit well and the sound that it makes when, when the bat when doesn't make good contact with the ball. And that's why outfielders before the game in, in, in the ballparks that they go to will, will – stand out in the outfield and shag balls. And not because they need to shag more balls, it's because they're trying to hear the sound that a well-hit ball makes to determine whether or not they have to go back or forward. It's not everything you think about when you're, when you're you, know, sh- you know, shagging balls, but it's certainly there's one of the contributing factors. But at Shea Stadium, because the airport made so much noise, the planes made so much noise, it was one of those things that was was no better for the home team than it was for the visiting team. And I, I remember a, a lot of times um, Lee Mazzelli playing center field. What, what a great person Lee was and a great friend of mine. And he'd you know, come in and his first step would be in, but the ball was on the warning track, and then he'd have to go back, and he had lightning speed. He'd be able to chase it down, but Shea Stadium was was one of those ballparks where the things that were happening around the stadium contributed <laughs> to, to the things that were happening inside the stadium uh, to some degree. I could definitely see that, and um, and if I may, I, I have actually Sam. If I could jump in here, I have two questions for you, Skip. If I may, and uh, one about the book, and and I certainly would recommend to everyone listening to get Insight Pitch. I 
so enjoyed reading it. And as Sam said, you know, you and as you said yourself, it's not a chronology. You bring the reader along with you on your journey, where you're visualizing different things at different times, and your mental imagery and all of that. It's an incredibly enjoyable read. And I've written down here many things Thank I'd like to ask much. you about. Uh, certainly. Uh, I've written down many things I'd like to ask you about, but I'm going to focus on just this one. Maybe you could tell the listeners a, a little bit more, because I, I would love to hear this from your voice, having read it in the book. Can you please tell us that story live about the trick that the clubhouse manager played on you when you got to Shea, you had just landed LaGuardia, it was a doubleheader going on, and you were rushed to the ballpark, and they played a, you know, a pretty, uh, pretty interesting hazing prank on you. And I'd love to hear you tell that story. <clears throat> yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Herbie Norman, uh, clubhouse guy uh, for the Mets for years and years, uh, great guy. I mean, you have to have a sense of humor, I guess, to, to, to pick up everybody's dirty laundry and uh, um, clean it for them and put it back in the locker and shine the shoes. It's a, a thankless job. And he was a, he was a character, um, very interesting guy, a, a trickster. Um, I, I don't know whether I tell it in a book or not. I think I do, but um, quick aside, my, my father had come to the game and uh, was trying to come in to, to see me after a game. Um, he came, drove from, from Norwood, Mass., up to see me. And I ended up pitching well, and I was on Kiner's Corner and at the end of the game being interviewed. So I wasn't there when, when the game was over. And my father presented himself in a clubhouse, and, and, and Herbie, you know, being Herbie, said, oh, my God, what are you doing in here? Who are you? Who are you? What are you? Oh, my, I'm going to get fired. I can't believe that they let you in here. I don't care whose who's father you are. You can't be, oh, my God, and holding his head and he's holding his ears and making a scene. Um, but obviously, you know, other players had had people in the, in the, the locker room. My father was all upset. and <clears throat> He put him in a closet where the, the bats were kept. Until I was able to get off the kind of corner, and I came down and I asked Herbie. I said, "Hey, my Herbie, my father was coming in after the game," and Herbie said with a smirk on his face, "He said, yeah, he's in that closet over there <laughs> with the bats, and the closet wasn't lit; it was dark in there." Um, Herbie was <clears throat> Herbie was a, a well-recognized prankster. Um, I got to the Mets in. Uh, in, in the middle of the year, I had come from AAA, and I was you know, new to New York. I flew in, like, over the game as I was coming into LaGuardia. game was being played out, and I was very much aware that you know, I was going into the, the middle of the, of the, the lion's den, you know, if, if I was going to get a chance to play. Um, so I, I said something you shouldn't say. To the cab driver, I would recommend that, that nobody <clears throat> say, you know, take me to Shea Stadium as, as quickly as you can. Um, it's a bad <laughs> thing to say to cab drivers, <clears throat> and it, it gives you a, it, if you can if you can follow my my words, a bad taste in your mouth. By the time I got to Shea, um, and I I went into the, the ballpark, <clears throat> in the middle of the game is 
there's nobody around, the TV's on, Herbie's doing laundry. And so he, he says, you know, where the hell have you been? We've been waiting for you. You're supposed to be at the beginning of the game. And, and a typical Herbie Norman theatrics. <coughs> and he uh, put me in a uniform, and uh, I didn't really look at the uniform. I was getting dressed and trying to get my cleats on. And I put, we had a, we had a warm-up jacket, <coughs> a Mets warm-up jacket. They gave me, and <coughs> oh, excuse me, I put that on. And I was getting dressed furiously because I was late, evidently. And he said to me, um, he saw what I was saying. Instead of walking down to the bullpen, he said, I'll give you a ride. He said, yeah, you might not be able to find it. There's a lot of tunnels and stuff around here. So uh, we were playing the Expos. So he brings me to the Expos bullpen on purpose. And they had same color uniforms, same color warm-up jackets that we had. And a lot of them had their hats off, and they were sitting out there in the middle of the game, relaxing and watching the game. And I can't understand to this day how you can be such an idiot and and so naive. But I was new, and uh, I guess I was vulnerable. (laughs) So I... I start to go down and introduce myself to the expos and I'm shaking hands and, and they're all kind of smirking and, and uh, a couple start to laugh and, and, and this was Herbie's big prank was he, he, uh, he took me to the wrong bullpen on, on purpose to, to see what my reaction would be. And, and uh, it was terribly embarrassing. And then he, he took me to the right bullpen, and uh, when I got to the to the right bullpen, Joe Pignatano, uh, Piggy, was on the bullpen phone, and, and at that time, Rube Walker, the pitching coach, was was trying to get me to to come into the game. They wanted me to pitch. Well, I'm in the wrong bullpen, so I I can't, I can't warm up. Uh, he had called the the right bullpen, and he should have called the expo bullpen. That's where I was. Um, so I quick, I quickly warm up and I'm, I'm in the game. All of this takes, it, it can't take any more than 10 minutes. And, and so I, I, I get in the game and I look out in the, at the expo bullpen and these guys are scratching at the windows and throwing stuff in <laughs> over the fence and hollering at, at me. <laughs> they were, it looked like monkeys in a cage and, uh, it was embarrassing then, and it's still embarrassing now. <laughs> and and the way you wrote it, I didn't know what was coming next, because I'm reading it, and you're saying I'm, I'm introducing myself to the guys, and they're looking at me. Okay, it doesn't sound really out of out of the norm. And then when I got to the part about how you then realize you're in the Expo bullpen, it is not what I expected. And to the listeners, that's the way the book is written. It's written in such a compelling way that you never know what's coming next. And, uh, and the way you intersperse the italics and all of that, and, and it's just so well done. And the other thing I'd like to ask you about is, is just something off the book. As a Mets fan in my early 50s now, so you were my second closer on the Mets. Tug was first. You were my second closer. And um, do you remember, Skip, a commercial you did for Mother's Day? It sticks with me to this day, where there was some promotion going on, and you did the commercial. 
And I don't remember every word, but some of it was, you said something like, bring your mom out to Shea on Mother's Day and you get this particular giveaway. I'd love to bring my mom out here, but I'm on the team and I may have to work that day, so you be sure you bring your mom. Do you remember doing that commercial? No, 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 I don't. I don't. <laughs> my mother, my mother's still alive. Uh, she's 103, and uh, I would love to find that if I could find that. Should, should, uh, should love to hear that. I really don't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> First I've heard of it. I will try to find it on YouTube. I will hunt it down and I'll send it to you an email. So, um, but I remember that. Like it, like it just sticks with me, and um, so I, I think Mike want to jump on here. I don't want to take too much of your we, time, but we didn't have really... a lot of. There was not a lot of opportunities when I pitched in Milwaukee. There was not a lot of opportunities to to do plugs for the team, or there was no endorsement opportunities uh, in Milwaukee, and so coming to New York was is a little bit different. You know, the the great announcer. Bob Euchre had some funny stories about um, his his endorsement contract with Northern Tissue and um, how how they used to the, the film the commercials and everything with him with with Northern Tissue because that was one of the sponsors with the with the Brewers at the time. So I guess I wasn't very much used to, to doing plugs or, or commercial time when I got to the to the Mets. Um, I'm going to find it. I'll, I will make it my point to find oh, it and get it to you. Thank you. I would appreciate it. Thanks. No problem. So, Sam, I'll turn it back to you. Uh, I'm going to turn it right over to Mike. Mike, take it away. Uh, Skip, uh, I'm just absolutely thrilled to be speaking with you this evening. As an eight-year-old in 1975, you helped develop my uber passion for baseball, and, and I want to thank you for that. And if you don't mind... I'd like for you to take us back to 1976 because for the last 43 years, I've convinced myself that had not, had Dan Kingman not uh, injured his thumb, I believe it was, he missed about a month and a half of the season. The Mets were 67 and 53 with him in the lineup. Do you think the Mets could have uh, overtaken the Phillies in 76? Oh yeah. Yeah. You're talking about David, David Kingman? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, Kingman was a a, a, a kindred soul. Uh, David and I got very close. Uh, a very interesting man. Um, never saw a baseball that he, he couldn't hit um, off the score, but he tried to hit every ball he ever saw into the LaGuardia. Uh, he, he tried to launch everything. Um, Big uppercut swing, uh, and David Kamen could run. He was like a gazelle. Uh, first to third, he he could really move. One of the fastest in the league. I don't know whether you knew that or not, but he was very graceful. Um, Kingman wore um, the old plastic uh, contact lenses, um, and he never took them out. He uh, he would off-center the lenses when he slept, and then he'd recenter them in the morning when he woke up. And um, his eyeballs always looked like the the LIE, 
They were red. They were. They always looked like some kind of a roadmap. Uh, it's because they they weren't breathing properly because you, your eyes are supposed to get some oxygen and some air in there. And then you have to give them a chance. Um, I thought he was always a. Even though we had a team full of leaders, uh, and I I I credit Eddie Cranepool and Buddy Harrelson for for being you know great team leaders all the years that they were there. Um, but I saw David on a quiet way was um, was one of the great team leaders. Um, I don't remember the injury as well as as you as you do. Um, I, I I know that that David um, was the kind of player that would play hurt, and I think what he tried to do, if, if memory serves me right, I think he tried to play with it for a couple of games and 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 did in fact hurt himself um, uh, pretty badly. But I I thought the the Mets team in spring training every single year I was there I was there almost five years looked like a pennant winner to me. And we played hard, and we played every game to its conclusion. Um, we took nothing for granted, and it was it was a joy to be on a team that, that played so hard and, 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 and played so well. And, and Kingman was was a big part of that team. I, I remember some of the home runs that, that he hit were just enormous shots. Um, I, I haven't heard from him in years. I hope I hope he's okay. I hope he's doing well. Um, I, I don't hear from all the all the Mets as, as much as I I should. But but Kingman was we had lockers very close to each other. I used to see him uh, early before the game and uh, very deep thinking, interesting man. Great sense of humor. Uh, he was a, tr- a truly a great teammate. Do you think the Mets could have overtaken the Phillies that season? Um, you're, you're asking me to go back a long way. Um, yeah. I, I always, every time I put the uniform on, I thought we could win. And I, I thought we had a chance um, in, in 67, uh, in 60, 70, uh, 76, I mean, um, right up until the end. So, yeah, I, I we would we had a, a World Series share meeting, as as the the teams often do before <clears throat> before anything is decided. The team sits down has a meeting. Mets used to hate meetings. Joe Torre used to hate meetings, so we never had very many meetings. <clears throat> we had kangaroo court um, every now and again, but we never had that many meetings. And uh, we did have a sit down meeting and voted shares. And um, I remember the how generous. Um, I don't know whether this is well recognized, but the the players get a chance to vote how many full shares, partial shares that they were going to give, and who was going to get them. And the Mets uh, at the time voted shares for the uh, the training staff, uh, the the ball boys. Um, some of the staff that were in the grounds crew, very, very generous, you know, because there was only a finite number of, of money to be had. But, uh, yeah, we were we were thinking we were going to play. <laughs> we were hoping we were going to be there. 76 was going to be our year. 
And uh, my, my second question is, you started your career as a, a starting pitcher, obviously, and then you transitioned into a relief pitcher. Which did you prefer? Which did you uh, derive more enjoyment from? Obviously, as a starter, you stay in the game longer, but as a reliever, you get to participate in more games. Yeah, well, actually, I started my career as a third baseman, as, a, as an infielder. And um, I'll get to your question in a second. Um, I, I, I played with the Kansas City A's uh, in 1964 and 65 as a third baseman with, uh, with Ed Charles, if, if, you, if you know uh, Lider. Uh, easy Ed Charles, great guy. And um, I, was, I wasn't hitting very well. I had to go into service for a short period of time. I got out. Uh, you know my problems with vision and contact lenses, and <clears throat> and if you if you after you spend a few months in the military service and try to get out, the the curveball and I were, were were not on the same page, let me say. And I was in the minor leagues playing terrible. Finley asked me if if I would wanted to try pitching, and he had some money invested in me, and so he, he made a pitcher out of me. And I, I did okay in a, in a short period of minor leagues. In 1969, they had a draft for the Seattle Pilots. Remember that? And I was drafted. And they sent a letter to me, a welcoming letter, a uh, form letter, a blank at the top for my name and a blank at the bottom for my salary. And I signed it and sent it back. I was happy to still have a uniform, you know, making transition to the pitching but we, I never really had a conversation with the, the pilots with Seattle about, you know, where I was going to pitch or even if I was going to pitch. So I went to spring training not knowing. And Rich Rollins, remember Rich, was the third baseman with um, Seattle. And so I, I dressed up in my uniform in spring training, went down to third base, and I was fielding ground balls at third base with him. And, you know, chucking them over to their first base. And they hit another fungal bat ground ball to me, and I'd field it and throw it to second base and first base. And, and uh, the pitching coach says, um, Lockwood, what are you doing on the infield? Get out in the outfield with the rest of the pitchers. And I, I said to Rich Rollins, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm sure today he tells a funnier story than this, I said, Rich, I'm a pitcher. <laughs> I, I ran out to the outfield. It was my first recognition that I was actually going to be a pitcher. Um, and to answer your question directly is, is I love being a closer. Uh, I love the bullpen. Um, I got a pen, chance to pitch every every day or mostly every day. Um, if, you, if you read the book, you understand I was a nervous Nelly kind of player, you know, pacing back and forth and nervous energy and not having a good outlet for for any of that stuff and getting a chance to pitch two or three times a week as opposed to once every other week was, was a big difference for me. I, I was much better at, at coming in and, and knowing I was going to play and if I screwed up, it, I get a chance to play tomorrow rather than 
than having a way to hold five day rotation and you know the the mind games that 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 stress and anticipation can play with you were were just killers for me not killers but I was a better relief pitcher than than I ever thought I could be once I understand understood the role and once I was able to embrace it I, I was a better relief pitcher than I was a starting pitcher I enjoyed that very much more. Uh, Sam did dug up a tweet that I sent out back in 2011. Uh, Sam refreshed my memory. He went something to the effect that Skip Lockwood is one of my all-time favorite Mets. Uh, I had forgotten that I had issued that all these years later. Uh, I just wanted to jump in there. I do have to get going. I'm working the Midnight Tour this week. Uh, Skip, I can't even begin to tell you how much of a thrill this has been speaking with you this evening. Uh, and again, as an 8- to 12-year-old, uh, you were the persons uh, chiefly responsible for developing that passion for baseball uh, as part of my childhood. Thank you again. Thank you. Uh, it was such a thrill watching you. Uh, I was one of those 11,000 fans in the stands in the 78 and 79. Uh, you know, so I think we're a pretty, uh, a pretty strong group. And, uh, again, thank you. Thank you very much, Skip. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, and, gentlemen, I, I will rejoin you next week. I have to get going. By all means, man, by all means. Skip, I, I hope you have a few more moments. I have I have a couple. Uh, I have Excellent. a couple, but not too much longer. Excellent. Well, uh, what, what's interesting is that, uh, and, Mike, thank you for joining us, man, and, and go go to work, baby. Um, I, I just dug up on Twitter a photo of you – in the jersey I was talking about, talking to Lindsey Nelson uh, in an interview. Uh, it's a black and white photo. Uh, and I think that's how we're going to uh, quickly segue back. Uh, I have a couple more questions, but, um, it, it, you know. Did Lindsey Nelson, you know, Nelson have an outrageous sport coat on? Wasn't he the guy that always used to wear yeah. those yes, crazy-looking yeah. sport coats? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's basically it's probably brown, I'd guess, although it's black and white, uh, and it's kind of a, a cross. I wouldn't say checkered because it's the same color, but 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 there's just a bunch of squares on his jacket. If you remember this interview, no, I, I don't remember that interview. No. Well, it's an interesting photo to 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 come into, but. What's also interesting about your Seattle pilot era is that I've always uh, noticed this, and I wonder if you've ever thought about it, is that it's the only World Series trophy with a Seattle pilot pennant on it. Interesting. Interesting. Well, this is the 50th year for that team. Uh, It will be this year. And um, next year is going to be the 50th for the Brewers. Um, I have I have contemplated writing another book and and trying to remember the stories from the pilots that that uh, Bowden might have missed. Um, the, uh, the the team, the Seattle team, was uh, was quite hilarious. And if if you know how the the 25 players came together, they were basically cast-offs from from all the other teams, and and they came together um, 
an, an elusive amalgam of, of players and retired players or almost retired players and some rookies. And um, we had we had trouble fielding an all-star because we didn't have anybody who was playing well enough to make the all-star team, but you had to have somebody. So uh, Mike Keegan uh, made the all-star team. Uh, um, I think he was hitting 220 or something like that at the time. Um, it was the Bowden's book uh, books uh, about the Seattle team um, greatly undersold some of the hilariousness, craziness, the utter uh, ridiculousness uh, of the antics uh, of those guys on the team. Um, they were funny and, and playing ball with them, being in the same clubhouse with them was just such a hoot. Um, I remember in spring training, um, Bowden and I were run, running laps, as the pitchers do, in the outfield. And, and um, coming to the close of spring training, I said, I said, Jim, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about making this ball club. And he says, how come? He says, you've been pitching very well. I said, well, they're still calling me Charles. And, and they don't know my name. And he said, he said, I'd just go with it, man. If, if, if go with Charles, that'd be fine. You know, Charles Lockwood has a certain air about it. He said, that sounds theatrical to me. He said, I wouldn't worry about names at this point. In the game. If they give a uniform with your last name spelled correctly on the back of it, he said, I would, I'd, I'd go with whatever first name they want to give you. <laughs> so, um, I didn't realize that it was the only the only time that that flag would be uh, on a World Series trophy. Yeah. It'd be great to they have that right. trophy, yeah. wouldn't it? Wow. No, it's it's yeah, it's and, and that's something every time I, I took a photo of it once. I, I do, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. It, it's a, it, I, I I know that it's a, quite the photo that. You could even blow up if you if you want, which which is a pretty interesting thing to have on the wall, I think. But um, I I wanted to ask you, I, you know, you were talking about Yogi Kersen, you know, which which it obviously people curse, everybody curses, and ball players are people. So it's just funny that that we generally speaking, you know, we see people. In uh, of, of player ilk, generally keeping it, you know, uh, uh, clean, and and then when a when a video like Terry Collins comes out, everybody's like, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> you know, where he's dropping some c words too, uh, and <laughs> so so you know, I just I I kind of wanted you to talk about you know just the fact that it's it's real, like every everything's real. If you will, you know, I wish I had I got into the the club earlier. I didn't I didn't get a chance to have much time with Yogi. Um, Yogi was a larger than life guy. If everybody in the world talks in in a narrative, uh, Yogi would talk in in cursive. Uh, he was a funny guy. Uh, I, I think he was. Um, a lot smarter and, and more savvy than, than people give him credit for. 
uh, he was, uh, you know, dumb as a fox. Uh, I, the players that played for him loved it. Um, I was only there. He got he got fired the next day, so I wasn't there very long. Uh, but I I wished I had played with him. And I played I played with guys that were that w- would swear. I I played with with guys that would lead the the chapel service, you know, before the game and and, and never utter a curse word, you know, on the field at all. And it is real. I mean, players are are real people. Um, You don't realize that even though you win two or three Cy Young Awards, you can still get sick to your stomach, you know, before an important game. And I I saw players who, who, who had it made, you know, had had beautiful homes and storied careers and in thinking that the game that they were playing in now today was, was the most important game um, of their life. And I got to, to meet Ted Williams uh, when I was with the Sox, and that was a thrill. And it has been said that, that Ted shared uh, many things with the Boston fans, but but one thing that he shared with them that they knew that that every single game was urgent. Um, he, uh, I, I, the game is was real, um, and the fact that you had a, a, a major or a minor role in the outcome of that game um, was was something you had to absorb. It's something that you had to live with. And I remember before I would come to the ballpark, like trying to eat lunch at home before I would come to the ballpark was impossible. I just I couldn't sit there. And you go out and you try to have a salad, you know, before you come to the ballpark. I just could not sit. I couldn't I couldn't put dressing on the salad. My hand wouldn't allow me to do it. It was just um, I just had to get to the ballpark. I had to get a uniform. I had to get to the field. It, it was an overpowering message that the game was so important that, that um, you know, it, it just became part of, of everything you did. It's really tough when the game gets taken away from you when you retire. Uh, my wife can tell you that I wasn't very happy and uh, I wasn't very, very good to be around, but it, it, and it happens a lot to players that the, the game that you play is so important, <clears throat> it's, it's really tough to have them come and take the uniform away. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pass it on to my, my friend Rich, and then hopefully, Skip, I just have two more questions. Um, Rich, go ahead. So, Skip, um, in reading the book, a couple of things popped out to me was that Ed Charles, you, you say you, know, you were the heir apparent at third base in Kansas City, and he was really nice to you. And it's interesting, the connection there, because he obviously was later traded to the Mets and part of the Miracle Mets. So there was your Mets connection. You, were, you, know, just, you had just signed your contract, and you sort of had a, a quasi-Mets connection there. I think you met him in Cleveland uh, as a, just a – I think you were about 17 right. or 18 years old at the time, right? Yeah, I was – they were doing a cameo – with me, they had signed me for some money, and they were taking me around the league just to, I guess, let the other press, you know, core interview me, which was kind of a waste. But 
um, gave me a couple weeks with the team. And Ed was more than kind. Not everybody, if you read the book, was as kind. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed was very welcoming. Um, he was from, I think, Tampa, Florida, and um, had been through some tough times in his life on his own. And he really didn't care whether I was going to play third base or not. He knew who he was and um, just a great, elegant, smooth, uh, just a role model. It's just so the movement, his glove, and uh, the way he would throw the ball running, you know, towards home plate or running away, the quick hands he had when when he had to make a, a play. Um, I just think he was a a beautiful, elegant man, and I wish I could have played with him more. Uh, I ended up in the minor leagues, other places, but uh, I I really enjoyed – he was kind to me when I I first got to the big leagues. And yet that comes off that way in the book. And the last thing for me, Skip, being respectful of your time, is you reference in the book you had a meeting with Jesse Owens. And that stuck out to me because – what a historic figure that man is. And I believe, as you wrote in the book, he actually mentioned his um, at least eye contact with Adolf Hitler uh, during the 36 Olympics. And if you could just say a word or two about what it was like to meet Jesse Owens and have that connection to that enormous part of history. You know, these are the things that happen sometimes that uh, when, when you get away from it, you know, some distance away from it, you 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 realize what the hell happened to you. You know, well, I just uh, Jesse was there. He had come to to help me run better, run faster. He he had been hired by Finley to come help me run quicker from first to second, to round the second base bag better, to to learn running techniques. He had come to help me and. Uh, it was, I was just running in the outfield and this guy appeared. He wasn't in, in uh, baseball uniform. He was in sweatpants. And, um, I didn't know what was going on. I, I didn't know who he was. Uh, he was obviously very quick because he was, I was much younger than he was and he was easily faster than I was. I was supposed to be fast. Um, and he was asking some extraordinary questions. Um, why are you running? Are you running away from or are you running towards? Um, what does the field feel like when when your feet are touching it? Um, what you, When you start to run, what is your first move? What is, with your right foot or your left foot, you cross over to stutter step or... Uh, you know, all of these, I never, I never thought of these questions. I never, nobody had ever asked me stuff like that. Uh, I was 17 years old. I didn't, I just ran. And, and because of, of what he had gone through and the way he had been treated and the things he had witnessed in his life, um, being American, being black, being so, enormously successful um, I just wished I could go back and meet him again you know he'd have he'd be able to do it better the second time um, 
I write about him in the book because he had a big impact on me. His his abilities to translate. Um, running's not not a you know baseball player. Running is secondary. You know, hitting, catching, throwing those are all primary things. Running didn't seem all that important unless it was the primary thing that you you thought about it. And Jesse's ideas about how to get a lead and uh, how to run the bag. And, and if you're running towards something, it, you could be a lot faster than running away from something. He uh, putting putting a goal in my mind of trying to take three steps and then slide, take four steps and then slide. Um, you know, everything that he worked with me in, in the short period of time that he had, I, I think he, he improved. Uh, he, he improved a lot more than just my running ability. He, he was, I, I just wished I had more time. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Nice to, nice to talk with you. Well, it, it's amazing, you know, just um, the the connection. Just When you were talking about Jesse Owen, uh, you know, you feel this is what human connection is, is that it, it carries onward where you're talking about meeting yeah. him. And then, and then I'm listening to it and and feeling that that you know when he was talking about looking into the eyes of Adolf Hitler, it's like whoa. Um, but but my my I wrote down a question uh, uh, for my last one that that was a follow up to my last one, but I'm I think I answer it in it uh, is the fact that you finish your career in Boston, your hometown. Um, and you also went to MIT, and you were talking about that anxiety before the game, and I was wondering what you did with that anxiety after your career, uh, and I think I answered it in the fact that you went to MIT. Yeah. Um, I I was a peculiar guy. I didn't look like a baseball player. Yeah, I had funny-looking glasses, it, big ears. I uh, was not very attractive. When I was a little boy, they had to bribe the dog into playing with me. Uh, I uh, I was determined to to have a second professional career. Um, I had a, a good long baseball career. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. And I was um, determined to, to have a, a, a second maybe third professional career. Jim Lundborg was my roommate. He went to dental school, became a dentist. I thought that was amazing. A guy named Baldwin was my roommate in Milwaukee. He became uh, a geneticist. Um, uh, Guys that I played with created second careers for themselves. So when I I was uh, released from baseball, uh, very unceremoniously, uh, I was determined to go and get into business. I got accepted to Harvard and, and to MIT. MIT uh, was was very good for me. It was very welcoming. It doesn't sound like a school that would that would have a, a great uh, fraternity around around helping students, but they did. They really worked with me. I was an oddball. You can imagine uh, what the normal 
SAT and the graduate level is at that school it was amazing for me to be there. Um, but now that you know me a little bit, you know that I made up my mind that I was going to do this, and 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 I I, I finished. Uh, I was top of the class, but I finished. And uh, to my knowledge, I think I'm the only MIT graduate that's ever played in the major league. I don't, I don't know that that's still true, but a couple of years ago, it was true. So I'm proud of that. I, I still, I don't have a World Series ring, but I wear my school ring, um, my college ring, and uh, I'm proud of being, being able to, to call, uh, call that school a, a, an alumni from that school. It, it's great, and we appreciate you coming on and sharing all these stories, and we'll welcome you back anytime you want to join us again. Matt, thank you. It, it was Sam. It was so it was so great to be on. I haven't a little rusty doing these podcasts. Sorry, I got so long winded. But some of the stories I wanted to tell you, I have more. So if you want to schedule another time, um, I would. Uh, I'd love to be there. Be on absolutely, absolutely. We'll be in touch. Thank you so much, Skip. We appreciate it. Thank you. You're Skip. very welcome, Sam. Have a good evening. Thanks, Skip. Bye bye. You too. Well, well, Rich, um, that was quite fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating book. It, it's a great read, and I, I'm just it, 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 it's making my brain better. Honestly, <laughs> it's just it's it's really his his outlook on life and his outlook on baseball uh, is inspirational. It, I learned a lot, Sam. Um, he was bigger than life to me. Uh, he was, as a, what, 10, 12-year-old when he was, you know, in his heyday with the Mets, um, it was like, okay, you know, let's win the game, bring in Lockwood. Here comes Lockwood. Okay. It was like, kind of like now, you know, bring in Familia. And, um, and here he is. He, the book is really, really good. You know, it's very readable. The stories, um, as you get more into it, you're going to read one about a fist fight he gets into um, as a 17-year-old in, in, the, in a major league clubhouse, which and he's not a violent guy, as you could tell, but he, he had to defend himself. You'll read about that. And just all the fascinating stuff, like the stuff you brought up. The reason he became a baseball player was because he almost severed his arm, and learning how to throw a ball was his way of rehabbing his arm. And, um, Doesn't that say a lot? I mean, this is—we're talking about a developing boy, you know. Right. We're not talking about man. So what are we doing here? If you know what I'm talking about. Right, right, and and then the the Ed Charles thing that really stuck out to me because it's like Ed—he was a 17-year-old kid. Hey, someday I'm going to be a third baseman in this organization. Ed Charles was the third baseman, and and Ed, who was Ed Charles? Well, he's a guy the Mets bring in when they win the World Series. So it's just a, that kind of eight degrees or six degrees of separation thing. And the whole thing with Jesse Owens. And the Owens. Seattle Pilots, too. Yeah. Well, the, the Jesse Owens stuff. But, you know, like like you're talking about with with the whole separation thing, I mean, you know, it, it's synergy. It's, it's, it's this weird, harmonious way that, you know, it this world has bring whatever we label things as, <laughs> like the New York Mets and – and the Seattle Pilots and, and, and the World Series trophy coming together, you know, like 
little things like that are are cosmic. Really, cosmic is the right word. And the fact that this guy that we just spoke to, you know, saved games for Seaver, Matlack, Kuzman. Um, the story, you probably read this one in the book where the last game of 75, they wanted to make sure Seaver gets the win, and they told him, hey, you're going to be in, like, as early as possible because we're going to throw the kitchen sink at him to make sure that Seaver gets this win. And he was one of the guys who came in to help preserve it in a season that Seaver won the Cy Young. Um, and then – and then the other thing that just came up five minutes ago, I did not realize that when he when he left baseball, he then pursued his degree at MIT. That for some reason that didn't connect to me. And you brought it up, and he you know he went with it. And he's obviously a very intelligent guy. The the book was not ghost written. He mentioned that earlier, as you did. Um, he's a pretty amazing guy. When you stop and think about the boyhood stuff to how he became a closer. He was a third baseman, and then he became a, a starter and a closer. MIT after school, I mean, it's just pretty amazing guy there. Well, I like the way he connected, uh, you know, being on the mound to being in the motion picture after I, I, I was talking about, you know, the, the screenwriting and stuff and the visuals. And, and uh, it, it's, yeah, it really sticks out to you that uh, – you know, I've read a lot of baseball books for sure. I've read a lot of baseball books, but this is this sticks out. It does, it does, and, and you know, this isn't just us blowing smoke because we had the guy on our podcast. It's really, really a good read, um, and it, it's a it's a quick read, but not not in, not because it's incredibly simple. It's a quick read because it, it's he's like you said. He's bringing you with you. He's bringing you with him on this journey, and you just kind of keep going with it. It's like you're doing it. You he's, know what I mean? He's thorough. He's yeah. thorough. He's very thorough to make sure that you understand the picture going on. Exactly. No, it was. And talking to him was. Um, it was better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, he he clearly is very willing to share the details, and um, he wasn't all about the book. You know, he was more than happy to talk about the other stuff. Um, just a quality guy. You know, it was, it was, it was great. It was really great. Oh man, it's fantastic. So, uh, you know, as we usually do, we're going to end with the last word, uh, rich, you know, it, it's always tied it together. Um, a little bit with the, uh, modern and the historic. You, can, you can't really have the modern without the historic. And um, I'm going to uh, to go to you first with my last word, uh, with your last word, and uh, and then I have mine tied into to a little bit of a skip and a tease. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. So so mine mine's excited. Um, I'm a bit excited about what we just did. You know, with Skip, I thought that was great, but mostly. I don't know if I'm drinking the Kool-Aid these days or what, but I'm very excited to get this season started. I really like what Brody's done to the roster. Um, I This spring training is one that I've been more um, eagerly anticipating than in a long time. I, I really – they turned over almost 25% of the roster. You had to. Um, he's made moves. He's pressed buttons. Who the hell knows if they're going to work or not, but I like what he's done. And I'm ready to go, so I'm pretty excited. Yeah, I agree. Let's get to it. And and what's so 
funny about that is that we have another number 38 at some point, and that's my last word, number 38, Skip Lockwood. Um, at some point, we're going to have an episode 38 down the road. Uh, I, I forget exactly outside of these specials where we are currently, but you see a lot of players on here. There's any. And here's the cosmic way of all of it coming together, Rich. There's, according to Ultimate Mets, who are the uh, uh, authority on who has won number 38 when it comes to the Mets, we have 42 players who have worn number 38. And we were talking about today being Jackie Robinson's uh, 100th birthday. And, and I actually saw it on Twitter somewhere that it's the 100th anniversary of his birth, which does make sense because, unfortunately, he died, uh, I believe, in 1972, which is, was, was you know, way too young. Uh, uh, Rich, do you know how old was Jack Robinson when he died? Uh, so you're, I think you're right, 72, so it would be minus 38. So he was um, 62. Yeah. yeah, and and you know the way we measure it now, that is just definitely way too young, and that was way too young then. And uh, but we celebrate him because that's that's all we have are are these memories. And uh, number thirty eight has, I mean, cosmically it goes all the way back to to nineteen sixty two, and the first player to ever wear number thirty eight in Mets history, uh, Skip Lockwood, is that tied into Mets history uh, cosmically. There's a lot of different names on here that we're going to eventually talk about on episode 38. Uh, And Skip Lockwood uh, lines up as the number 16th player to wear number 38. And um, including Bob Gibson (laughs) in 87, which is for for two days. Can you explain that one to me, Rich? In what year? I don't know, but Bob Gibson for two days in 1987 in July. Bob Gibson was a pitching coach with the Mets under Joe Torre. Um, and right. That's and apparently for, yeah. for two days in 1987 is what I'm looking at right now. That I don't remember. <laughs> I remember well, that I'm, he was. I'm gonna, well, that's, that's Sean Springer. And we will have to talk to John Springer about that one at some point. We'll have to recruit him onto here. Uh, maybe for episode number 38. That's actually, uh, there we go. There you are. I believe Dave Malicki right. worked. That is right. And without further ado, we will cut the teases there. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thanks to uh, Skip Lockwood for joining us tonight. Everybody has to. We, we didn't get a, a proper, um, uh, you know, I didn't uh, get it out of him, uh, the, the uh, shameless plug for his book. Everybody go to Amazon or whatever book place you want to go to at this day and age in 2019 and get inside pitch. My life is a major league closer. Amen. That up. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the only way we ever end this is uh, the only way we ever could, and that is, Rich, let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>